Yeah, it's 1056. So I'm going to go ahead and start. Caleb, thank you for sharing. I mean, that just kind of everything you just shared and what Ellen was praying and Nancy was talking about it, it, it kind of dovetails with what we're going to look at today. Um, you know, in, in light of this trial, I, I didn't feel like, again, we could kind of move on and go back to devoted, although I do think there are aspects of that that are going to come, come out in terms of our, our previous series. Um, but as I prepared for this week, uh, I felt a sense of leading in light of the continual trial to, to take us to a passage on crisis and crisis in the lives of God's people and how the Lord came to meet it. So if you have your Bibles with you, um, if you could turn to Mark 4. If you don't have your Bible, uh, go ahead and grab it, or I'm going to read every verse. So I'll try to read it in such a way that you can follow along. Um, but we're going to be going to the Gospel of Mark. And um, that's if, if, if you're not used to using the Bible, that's in the, the second half of the Bible. It's, it's uh, sort of like three-fourths of the way through. Um, the gospel according to Mark. We're going to go to j- chapter four, and um, we're going to be starting in verse thirty-five. Let me just make sure that's correct. Um, chapter four, verse thirty-five. And um, so, I'm going to. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read this passage, and then kind of the passage isn't like. Super technical, uh, the details, the context, the circumstances, they're kind of right there in the passage. So so what we often do is we'll look at a passage and then I'll do all kinds of like attempts at cultural unpacking about things that maybe are important to understand before we get to application. But kind of today what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of go straight to right after the passage, just go straight to lessons. Um, so uh, I've got my own little um, handmade slides today. So the, the message is is really called uh, Three Lessons. <laughs> you guys see my little sheets? My little homemade Three Lessons for a Crisis. Um, and uh, we're going we're gonna to read the passage, and then we're going to go straight to the lessons as they come. So uh, before I read, I'm going to pray one more time that our hearts would be open and hear from the Lord and that he would help me too. Let's pray together. God, I just confess to you that uh, I feel a great sense of a need from you right now. I feel a great sense of uh, my weakness and inadequacy, uh, a great sense of my need for your mercy um, on my life. And um, Lord, you see my heart. You know where it needs tending. You know where um, you're pleased and where you're grieved and and I just I just ask you God to to Lord forgive me a sinner as I come to preach your word um Lord I feel like this week was a challenge for me in terms of just orienting myself um to just daily routine as I'm going to talk about today and I feel like I needed to do a better job in different ways but I just thank you for your mercy that's here, for your grace that's here. And I trust, Lord, for you to meet us and that you would bless your people. As your word is preached, please, Holy Spirit, attend your word and work through, Lord, sound and technology and cameras and computers to go from soul to soul, from spirit to spirit. Let your living word do its work in our hearts to draw us to see you and to hope in you and to follow you. Lord God, fill us up today with your spirit, with nourishment. Cherish. Do do what you say you do with your bride, O Jesus, that you nourish and cherish your bride, that you wash her through the cleansing of your word, that that's why I'm doing what I'm doing now is to be used by you. That's why we're meeting today is to be, Lord, not us primarily doing the work, but you doing the work of loving your bride through your people using their gifts. And so, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Father, send your husbands, send our, our husband, Redeemer Jesus, through the Holy Spirit to our hearts to cleanse and wash us today through his word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to read. Hi, John Christopher. My son just walked in. No, sweetie. Can you, can you go ask mommy about that? I'm sorry. Okay, well, then we'll have to get it later. I love you, buddy. Um. Okay, so Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35, and I'll read till 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, 
let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. So again, three lessons for a season of crisis. The first lesson I'm drawing out of the text is let us seek our rest in our Father's providence and I can't read it backwards and be about his business. That should say our. Let us seek our rest in our Father's providence and be about his business. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> so um, in the 1940s, C.S. Lewis, some of you guys may have read this quote. C.S. Lewis was living in wartime England, and um, he was trying to address to people how he thought they should respond to what was going on. And he said these words that are that are kind of tough love, but in, in some respects, they really dovetail with our passage today. Um, and guys, I feel extra self-conscious. I'm still getting used to this um, after three weeks. So please forgive my stammering and hammering and hawing. Um, but here's what he said about living in wartime Europe where, well, actually, this is post-war time. This is the atomic age. And England had just come out of the devastations of the air raids from the Nazis where bombs were falling in their cities every day. And then they found themselves moving into a time where the bomb threat had grown exponentially into atomic force. And he said, he's answering the question rhetorically. When I hear the question, how are we to live in an atomic age? I'm tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century, when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age, when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed, as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents and motor accidents. In other words, do, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty or newness of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. It is perfectly ridiculous to go on. And, and he's a little bit rough here. I think the Lord has, has mercy and patience for us. But he says it's a little bit ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bliss bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. This is the first point to be made, and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis chatting with our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep, 
thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. And just as last week, as we, we started with a gruff passage from Isaiah, and then kind of I, I built and qualified around it, I, I'd like to qualify and, and build around um, this idea of let's rest in God's providence and be about his business. But, but let's go back to the text for a second that we read this morning. Jesus had been teaching the crowds from a boat sitting in a lake before the storm had come. He had come to preach, and he was doing his job that day. And when he was done with those crowds, he went to go to the other side of the lake, far away, to go minister to the people on the other side of the lake. Jesus had come to preach, and he was doing his job. In between preaching gigs for Jesus, he was drained. He was drained enough for ministry that he decided he needed a rest. So he crawled up on a cushion, and he went to sleep. Jesus was human, after all. And he needed not only to work, but he needed to sleep. He needed to rest every day, just like us. And that's where we find him in verse 37. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep, on the cushion. So this storm comes. And without going too far into it, this, the, lake of, the Sea of Galilee was known for, is known for sudden and great squalls. The, the sea is extremely low sea level, and it makes the hot air rush quickly up to the top of the airstream. And rapid storms ensue as the hot air clashes with cold air. So big storms, and if you're from Buffalo, like Al and I are, you know about the Great Lake effect on Lake Erie. It's classic. Buffalo's not cold simply because it's north. It's cold because of how it sits next to a lake that's really, really vulnerable to intense windstorms. So it, it was a terrible storm, and it was washing sea into the boat. And then Mark tells us this very strange thing. He says, Jesus is sleeping. He's asleep. The storm is rocking the boat, and the water's not even waking him. There's no hint of concern in Jesus. In fact, there couldn't be, like, a less hint of concern. I mean, the Lord is just sleeping. I wouldn't be able to sleep in a storm. You probably wouldn't be able to sleep in a storm. Um, and then, then even when he's woken up, there's no hint of shock or anxiety in him about what's, what's going on all around him. Of course, that's in the disciples, but it's not in him. And it made me ask this question of the text that I think Mark wants us to ask, which is, what is Jesus up to here? Like, what's his emotional anchor when he lost his circumstantial anchor? What, what is Jesus' emotional anchor right now? Like, how is he sleeping? And when he wakes up, how is his attitude, at least in terms of the circumstances, pretty prosaic? So that's kind of my question of the text is, what's Jesus' emotional anchor when he has no circumstantial anchor? And I think for Jesus, just like it was every day of his life, it was his father's providence over his circumstances and his, his father's call in his life. I think Jesus' anchor was his father's providence over his circumstances and his father's call in his life. And coming back to my point again, that's why my first point is this. Let us seek our rest in our father's providence and be about his business. Jesus was resting not only on a cushion, but he was resting on the protection and the providence of his father and his father's call in his life. As long as God, the father, had work for Jesus to do, he was going to be about his father's work. As long as Jesus' father had work for him to do, he was going to be about his father's work. And so I think the Lord would say, just like C.S. Lewis is trying to say in his quote, that it should be the same for us. As long as our father has us on this earth, we have a father who wants us on this earth. As long as our Father has me and you on this earth, it's because in His sovereignty, in His providence, He wants us here. And as long as He wants us on this earth, He has good works, which He prepared in advance for us to walk in. This is the verse that Nathan quoted during our time of sharing. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, You are new creations. Everyone who's born again is a new creature in Christ. And God has created good works in advance. It says in Ephesians 2.10, in advance, God has marked out your life and filled it 
with a plan for you doing good deeds out of that heart of new creationness. Cov 19, this virus may come and go. 401ks and the stock market may come and go. Spring soccer and summer vacation plans may come and go. Jobs may come and go. Our health may come and go. Circumstances change, but they do not change the nature of our fundamental identity. We are children of God through Jesus Christ, who have been given a call by our Father to love him and to love one another and to love our neighbor every day. Until he calls us home, and as Lewis was saying, it is a certainty that he's going to call us all home. We are all going to end this life, either when he comes or we go to him. But until that day, our foundational identity as children of God, who have been called by our loving Father to do good works through his grace and his power every day, continues. And Cov 19 and social distancing and, and all the health and economic ramifications to come They do not change that. Instead, they are now part. They are now the tapestry. They are now the background. They're now the soundtrack of the circumstances that are now shaping how we love the Lord and how we love one another. Um, A brother here in our church community and another brother and another brother, they went to care for each other. They took a, and I'm just going to throw out names. I know Josh and Jonathan and and um, Rob went on a walk in the park this week to have some fellowship together. How did they do it? Josh told me they spent the park walk walking six feet apart. It was awkward. It was strange. But that was the new shape of how they were trying to love one another. Now, the specifics are all going to look different for each one of us, right? We all have different jobs. We all have different families. We have different gifts. We have different uh, boundaries on our lives. We have different opportunities according to the gifts given us and the circumstances. But that foundational call to love the Lord and to be about loving one another, it doesn't change. And that's what anchored Jesus. Now, I, I, I do want to say here, Jesus had some inside information. He knew that his time had not yet come. And I suppose that played into his ability to to take a nap on the cushion. He he would die, he knew, by crucifixion and not by drowning. And until that time had come for him, he would labor and he would eat and he would sleep and he would pray and he would labor, he would work, he would eat and he would sleep and he would pray. He would go to work as well as he could and then he'd do the whole thing over and over again every day until his time had come. We don't know when our time's going to come, but for all of us, we can leave that to God. We can, we can give ourselves to the business of the life he has called us to live until he does call us home. As, as complicated as that might get and is getting now, that's still the same goal we had a month ago when very few of us were thinking about what it would be to be having church online today. So um, I want to go back to this passage in Ephesians 2.10 that, that God that Nathan read earlier it's man can i just say for a second i am so grateful to the lord that that we we have this gift of sharing and burdens and god working in each of you because i think we can see him working not just through our message but through through other people in the body to say hey church i'm trying to say this to you you know in ephesians 2:10 it tells us that that we have good works created in advance for us to walk in and i want to say something about those good works I don't think God is looking to hide them from you. Like, I think they're likely today, he's created good works for you to walk in. I think they're likely right in front of you. When we end this meeting, there's going to be good work for you to do. It's going to be right in front of you. Let let me tell you what I mean. If you're a dad and you have kids at your house, like Chris and me and Jim, you have kids who need you to be patient with them in this weird time who needs you to teach them about Jesus and his gospel. You know, I've said this before, we, we don't have a youth group right now. And it's, it's in some ways that's frustrating and hard. In another way, you are the youth group, mom and dad. It, it is your responsibility before the church's responsibility to teach and instruct your children in the ways of the Lord. He lays that good work on you primarily. And God still has that for you. You are to teach your children about Jesus. 
So that's a good work for you to do today. Perhaps more today than you could ever imagine or tomorrow, Monday, Tuesday. I mean, at my house, the opportunities to talk with my kids about Jesus has dramatically increased <laughs> in the last two weeks. And by God's grace, some of those days were really stepping into that. If you're single and you were working on developing your devotional life and spending more time with the Lord five weeks ago before all this changed, don't assume that's changed. God may still have that for you. Don't, don't give that time away now to social media and Netflix just because everybody in the world online is giving you special deals and encouraging you to do this stars you know, you, now you can get on stars for $4 a month, blah, 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 blah. No, the good work that God had for you to push deeper into him, to spend more time with him, praying for others, that's still in front of you. There, there of course, may be new ways for you to walk in and find expression of your life. Most of us are sons and daughters of parents. Most of our parents are elderly, and there may be new and special ways to love, including only being able to talk to them online, but maybe talking to them more than ever because they're scared. Or if you're a mom and are suddenly thrust into this new world with your ever-present kids, there's this new, I know for my wife, she's engaging this whole new world of structure and planning that she didn't have to necessarily embrace as intensely as she did before. You know, and and in your own marriages, if If you've been praying about pushing deeper into each other in your marriage, if you've been praying for God's mercy and grace to come upon your marriage in ways that that you've been longing for your entire marriage, that doesn't stop now because of Cov-19. That's a good work. Most of your time, a significant amount of your time is spent with that husband or wife. It's still spent with that husband or wife. That good work is still there right in front of you. So to the degree that you can, Keep loving the people you were loving before this started. And the new people that God brings into your life, they may be the new good works that he has in advance for you to walk on, to walk in. Um, So that's really the main point of this first, first section. Jesus knew his father. He knew his father's sovereignty over his circumstances. The storm was not an accident. The storm was no random thing. And this virus is no accident. We talked about that last week, the hard news of Isaiah 45, that God brings the light and he brings calamity. He has allowed this, and from from eternity past, he ordained that this would be allowed to encroach itself upon us. So let's trust, as Jesus did, seek to rest in his sovereignty and, and keep trying to love him and love people as he's called us. So that's part one. Part two. Let us ask ourselves who we think Jesus is. Let us ask ourselves who we think Jesus is. Let's turn our attention to the disciples. This section is, let us ask ourselves who we think Jesus is. These men are freaked out. They are shaken to the core by this storm. But Jesus, and I don't think he ever stopped being loving and gentle and patient with them. Jesus knows that their fear has taken them to a place it should not have taken them to. And so he seeks to adjust that with his questions. So going back to the text, the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea. Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? I mean, when, when I hear him say that, I'm, I'm just like, Jesus, what's your deal? Like, why are, why are we so afraid? Like, look at that. Like, the boat is literally filling with water. You don't, you're asleep. You're not doing anything. Like, you're literally unconscious. And we're dying. Like, we're going to die. And you don't seem to care. Like, they literally say, you know, don't you care? But I think if we really think about what Jesus is saying here, we really look at this text. We think about what's been going on in Mark. And I know you guys aren't, like, looking at Mark 1, 2, and 3. We see Jesus in Mark 1, 2, and 3 doing supernatural miracle after supernatural miracle, after supernatural miracle, full of power. Nothing in the world can 
oppose him. No disease, no demon can oppose him. They were with Jesus every day through this, and yet they did not, Jesus said, essentially, they did not know him or trust him as they should have. And you know, isn't that true of us? Sometimes I'll, I'll look at Israel in the desert and I'll think about the, the, the parting of the Red Sea and how everyone's rejoicing. Then a few pages later, they're ready to stone Moses for his bad leadership. And, and it can be so easy for me to be like, what a bunch of terrible whiners. But I am the same way. Like I grasp God one day. He does something amazing in my life to meet me one day. I rejoice in his nearness. I rejoice in his help. But but the very next day, in fact, even later that day, I am literally saying to the Lord, don't you care if I drown? I mean, I may not say it. I may not say it explicitly like that, but my heart is saying it. I, I need to, in that moment, ask myself who I think Jesus is. Jesus rebukes them for their fear. He says, why are you so afraid you still have no faith? What's at the core of his rebuke here? Is it, why did you wake me up? I needed a nap. That was, that was rest I needed. No, no, let's think about this. He says they did not have faith or much faith. You could look at it different ways in Matthew and Mark. He's just implying that either the faith they had was so tiny it didn't function in them or it was of such poor quality, like the faith itself was faith in the wrong thing. And he implies they should not have been afraid. And I don't think we can understand this rebuke if we don't really take a peer into this word that they brought to him. Their concern wasn't, we're going to drown, please do something. Their their words specifically were, don't you care? Don't you care that we're about to die? See, lost in this story, when we breeze through this, is the core issue for the disciples. They came to a place where, according to their words that Mark wrote down to the Holy Spirit, they doubted Jesus' compassion and concern for them. Their hearts came to the place not of simply, Lord, help us. You're all powerful. We have nowhere else to turn. No, 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 no. That's not what they say. They don't say, you are our trustworthy God. We have no other hope. Lord, please save. Please save. That's not what they say. They say, don't you care about us? Don't you have compassion and concern for us? I do this. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not setting myself apart from them. I'm, I'm, I'm putting myself alongside them. But I think in Jesus' heart, we have to try to get in his shoes. He made every hair on their head. He chose their eye color. He dreamed up the tone of their voice before they spoke a word or sung a hymn. He formed their bones. He created their flesh around those bones and those tendons. Jesus had watched them writhe out of their mother's womb and take their first cry. He had healed every skinned knee and every black eye and every winter flu. He had given them their parents on the day they were conceived. For better or for worse, but ultimately for God's good, he had chosen their parents. He had made their breakfast. (laughs) in the eggs or the fish or whatever he created that very morning before the storm. Jesus had given them every one of their molecules and he was holding every one of their molecules together every millisecond, every moment of their lives by the power of his word. This is the language of scripture. Every hair on your head is numbered. I formed you. I created you in your mother's womb. I knit you together. Every day, For you was written in my book before one of them came to be, right? We went over those verses last week. So Jesus is probably the last person on earth that they should say, don't you care about us? And and I say that with sympathy and empathy and solidarity with them because I say it in different ways. But I shouldn't. I shouldn't. He is the last person on earth that I should say, don't you care about us? I should rather say, I should rather hear him saying, Albert, don't you remember who I am? I am the one 
who holds you together every moment of every day. I am the only source, ultimately, this universe has for any sustaining power. And Albert, I'm the one who remembers you. In Isaiah 49, the Lord is seeking to comfort Zion. Now, this is his people in Jerusalem, and he's going to send them into exile to discipline them. He's going to send them into painful exile, and then he will bring them back and bring them back to their land. And before he brings any of this to pass, he's telling them, I will never forget you. And he says with great compassion, before he brings this terrible crisis upon them, he says to them, Zion has said, the Lord has forsaken me. And the Lord has forgotten me. And then God says, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. I will not forget you. And then he says, behold, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hands. I have inscribed you. On the palm of my hands. Charles Spurgeon writes of this passage What can be more astounding than the unfounded doubts and fears of God's favored people? The Lord's loving word of rebuke should make us blush. He cries, How can I have forgotten you when I have graven you upon the palms of my hands? How darest thou doubt my constant remembrance when the memorial is set upon my very flesh? I have graven thee. It does not say I have graven thy name. Thy name is there, but that is not all. I have graven thee. And Spurgeon goes on. See the fullness of this. I have graven thy person, thine image, thy case, thy circumstance, thy sins. Thy temptations, thy weaknesses, thy wants, thy works, I have graven thee, I have graven you, everything about you, all that concerns you, I have put you all together there. And then Spurgeon says, Will thou ever say again that thy God has forsaken thee when he has graven thee upon his own palms? And I would say, We probably will. And if the Psalms are any indication, you know, 150 Psalms tell us almost every other Psalm that God knows this propensity and this ache in our heart to say, Lord, where are you? You've forgotten me. And he gave us those Psalms to give voice to that pain. But he doesn't want us to end with that question. He wants in, in every one of those Psalms, but one, it comes back to the truth in one way or another. The Lord has not forgotten you, will not forget you, has graven you on the palms of his hand. And so when we're gripped with fear in a crisis like this or full of all kinds of wonderings, what's going to happen? You know, it doesn't have to be this crisis. It can be your marriage. It can be your kids. It can be your job. But when we're gripped with that fear and and we're tempted to say, don't you care? Don't you care? We may not say explicitly those words to God in our prayer closet. You don't care about me. But our fear is often vacant of a functioning sense that God has not forgotten us, that we are written, graven, carved into the palms of his hand. So how do we fight that? Well, one crucial way is simple. Spend time looking at him. If you don't want to forget who Jesus is, spend regular time in his word dwelling with him. See who he is. See him as this person in this boat, having a very different perspective than the disciples have, and ask him, why does he have this perspective? And why should I have that perspective? You know, we cannot spend three years in Judea, walking with him in the hillsides as he does miracles and preaches on the hills. But we're able, through the indwelling Holy Spirit in us, to have a nearness to him that they did not have. And, And when we spend time in his word, God speaks to us through his word. I remember in college, I was just talking to my kids about this in 1993. I was gripped with such intense fear. I was discouraged, depressed, uh, and it was principally about my relationship with God. And my heart was was crushing me with doubts uh, that I was no longer saved, 
that Jesus had not truly died for my sins, that God did not love me, that God had not accepted me, that I was still standing in a place of condemnation for my sins. I, I just could not get away from this overwhelming fear that I was a lost soul and that, that I was God's enemy. And, and I remember being in my dorm room one night and I picked up the book of Hebrews and I saw this verse in the book of Hebrews in chapter 13. Now this verse in Hebrews 13 was a passage that the author of Hebrews was taking from the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, so follow me here. These words were 3,500 years old. And the words were, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Those words were 3,500 years old. And when the author of Hebrews was using them on the Hebrew church, they were already, at that point, they were already 1,500 years old. So so Hebrews came out, you know, 2,000 years ago. Deuteronomy came out 3,500 years ago. But to the Jews in Deuteronomy and to the church in the book of Hebrews, those were God's words. And to me, in 1993, as I read those words in my dark-lit dorm room, those words were not just words on a page. The Holy Spirit breathed life into my heart through those words. Those words became alive to me in my experience, and they crushed my doubt that night. And when I came upon those words, I cannot tell you, like, this doesn't happen every time I read the Bible. Uh, This is very dramatic, but I'm using it as an example. Those words screamed to my heart. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And I was crying like a, just tears of incredible joy because I was hearing the Lord say that to my heart. That's what God's word does. He takes these words written thousands of years ago and through the Holy Spirit, he breathes life on them and breathes them into our hearts that we can see him again so that we can hear him again. So I just want to implore you, spend time in God's word, listening to him. That's how we fight forgetting who God is and no longer having a sense of who he is. And just briefly, Colossians 3 says, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. And then the next thing it says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing to one another in hymns and spiritual songs. So there's this huge connection between the word of Christ, the gospel, who who Jesus is portrayed in the scriptures, dwelling richly in me, and then how that should result in filling my tank up so that I can instruct, counsel, and care for other people with the same truth about that Jesus and other people. You know, it's said of women who are pregnant, I've heard this my whole life, they're eating for two, right? You've heard of that, that when you're with child, you're, you're not just eating for yourself, you're eating for someone else. Folks, that's the same thing about our quiet times, our devotional lives, our fellowship with each other, our, our, our going to church to hear God's word, whatever you know, those, those means of grace are, you're not just doing that for yourself. You're doing that for the people in your life that God wants you to counsel, to care for, to pour into. And you can't do that if your tank has no fuel in it. You can't give anybody something that you don't have. So be spending time with the Lord, not just for yourself, but for others. Okay, our last one. So that that concludes my second point. Let us ask ourselves who we think Jesus is. The second point is, or third point, final point is, let us always be going to God through Jesus for his glory and our good. Let us always be going to God through Jesus for his glory and our good. Let's go back to this story. Do you ever wonder... If the Lord who brought this storm in his sovereignty, okay, if and who was also clearly disappointed at their questions and concerns. And by the way, he he wanted them to have more faith, but he was walking with them through it. Right. He wasn't saying, get out of here. You have little faith. He was saying, guys, come on, know who I am, know who I am. I don't want to paint the picture of God's displeasure in such a way that it cancels relationship. He is working with them. Okay. He is working just like he works with us. We can grieve his spirit, but he still works with us. And, and that's what he's doing, okay? But, but he, was, he wanted them to have more faith, okay? So he, he knew that. But did it ever occur to you that Jesus, like when you think about this story, move past his, I wish you had more faith. Did it ever occur to you that he was glad to calm the storm for them? 
Like, did it ever occur to you that Jesus was simply happy to shut the storm down? That it was his plan all along to bring that storm and to save them from it and to fill them with godly fear so they could see him and know him better in a way they could never have if the storm had never come. Remember, it was not their coming to Jesus that he corrects with love. It was their hard thoughts of him that fueled their anxiety. That's an important point. It was not their coming to Jesus that he lovingly corrects. It's not their waking him up. He doesn't say, I was napping, you know? He never says anything about his napping or I was resting or leave me alone. He doesn't say anything about their coming to them. He just rebukes their hard thoughts of him. Don't you care about us? So if Jesus did not rebuke them for their coming to him, but for their doubts about his love and his power, then if anything, this story should embolden us to run to Jesus in the storm, but to run in faith, to run in hope to run in an expectation. And by the way, if all you can do is to run to him in terror, for God's sake, run to him. Like if, if you are undone and freaked out to the core, let him say to you, Albert, remember who I am. Like freaking go to him, okay? In any state you need to. And again, that's why the Psalms are there. But, but go to him. I, I just want to say this very basic thing because I need to hear it myself. And I'm sure you guys need to hear it too. Don't you know that God wants you to come to him when you're in trouble, when you're afraid, when you're in need, when you're tempted, when you're feeling weak all day long? Hebrews 4 tells us to come to him in every need, in every need. Like it doesn't say in some needs or the worst needs or in crucial needs. It just says every need, every need. Paul tells us to pray to God unceasingly unceasingly. Now, Paul did a lot of things throughout the day he had to, but I believe in between every task, in the middle of every task, he's just with the Lord. He's just saying, Lord, help, Lord, help. And if (laughs) if you've ever been a coach or a parent or a teacher, (laughs) you you probably know what that's like, or trying to care for an, an, an older mom or dad. I mean, But Jesus' teachings on prayer in Scripture, and I'm not going to go to them in microcosm, his teachings on prayer consistently portray and express this desire he has that we would repeatedly, consistently, almost badgeringly come to him in expectation that he will help and that he's good. That's the consistent theme. You know, if you people who are, are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more will your father give good gifts to those who ask him. Seek, ask, knock, right? We talked about this a few weeks ago. The the, the widow is going to a judge who has no integrity and she's badgering him to death to help her situation. And he says, even though I'm an unjust judge, I got to get this lady off my back. I'm going to help her. And God's like, how much more am I going to help you when you badger me, right? So I want to say this other thing about prayer. Jesus was whipped and beaten and punched and pierced. His beard was plucked out. He was stabbed in the side. He was hung up on a cross with nails in his wrists and his feet, bleeding to death. (laughs) Well, probably suffocating to death. Well, he he probably just decided to discharge his spirit. But, But he sat there hanging from the cross for hours with all of your sin on it until he was lifeless. And one of the primary reasons he did that is so that the door that shut, that had shut you out because of your sin from God's throne of grace and mercy, so that that door would be smashed to pieces. Jesus poured out his life for your sins so that your sins can no longer keep you from God's throne. That's why he did that. So how can we not, like, make use of this incredible, incredible, unspeakable privilege? I mean, how can I forget so often as I do and, and, and embrace and run to anxiety and run and embrace my temper and run and embrace these things when God says, run to me for refuge. Don't run to your temper. 
You know, don't run to, to binge watching. Don't run to wine. You know, he gave wine to make the heart merry, not to be an escape route from having to go to him, right? Isaiah 51.1, the Lord says, listen to this passage. It's very simple. It's very profound. Isaiah 51.1, it's very simple. It's very profound. He says, call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Do you see the chain of events there? There's four elements in this verse. A day of trouble, calling on God, he delivers us, we glorify him. A day of trouble, calling on God, he delivers us, we glorify him. Brothers and sisters, I submit to you that that in summation is the, is the basic whole of the Christian life. We looked at John 15, 6 and 7 three weeks ago where Jesus said that when we're staying close to him and his word is staying in our hearts, he says, ask me for anything and I will do it for you. He says, this is to my father's glory that you would bear much fruit. This is to my father's glory. Isaiah 51, a day of trouble, calling on God, he delivers, we glorify him. Listen, when we fail to go to Jesus in our struggle, we deprive him of the glory that he wants from our struggle, that he wants in our hearts, and he wants to be seen in those around us. Do you know that God wants to be glorified? That is, rather, he wants to be seen. He wants to be made known. He wants to be revealed to this world, to you, to those around you, through answering your prayers. Talked about this with the kids fairly recently. You know, as we've been cooped up together in, in the house in ways we, we, we hadn't been planning on and we haven't for a long time, we, we've been having some really good days at home and we've been having some really not so good days at home with the kids. And, and that includes me. I've had some really great moments as a dad and I've had some really bad moments as a dad as we've all been holed up here. And, and one day this, this week, or I think maybe it was last week we started with this, we've talked about it. I, I reminded the kids about this idea of God's glory in answering our prayers, of him, of him wanting to be seen through answering our prayers, and how that should be at the core of our prayer. God, be seen, be seen. And I use this scene. I don't know if you guys saw one of my favorite movies as a kid growing up was Superman, Superman the movie with Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder. And some of you guys are too young for that movie. And that's a shame because it kills any Marvel movie that's out there. I mean, by a million miles, it's just the best of the, it started the whole superhero thing. In Superman, there's this, oh, it's my favorite scene in all these superhero movies. It's, it's like Superman's coming out party. Lois Lane is, is getting in a helicopter on top of the Daily Planet and she gets trapped. The helicopter hits a snag of a wire, and it, and it ends up, like, hanging off the side of the building. Like, it's like an Empire State Building-sized building. And, and she's, like, hanging off the side of the helicopter, like, you know, miles below is, is, the, floor, is, this, is, the, is the city floor, the city streets. And this huge crowd gathers around Lois as she hangs from that helicopter, and everyone's watching. And she's just completely undone. What's going to happen to her? And then she can't hang on to the helicopter rail anymore. She lets go. And she starts to fall. Ah! You know, Margot Kidder does this incredible scream, right? She's falling down. She's in a desperate situation. She has no hope. And in the movie, it seems like she falls for two minutes. (laughs) And down below, Clark Kent sees it all. And he becomes... It becomes the occasion for the first time in the movie when he reveals himself as Superman, right? He pulls the shirt open. He says to that guy, excuse me, you know, and he just flies up. And, and, and the whole crowd sees him, you know, going up and he catches her. It's an incredible scene. And I had a question for my kids. I had a question for my kids. What's that? Who's that scene about? Like, who's that scene about? And they're all just like, it's all about Superman. Who gets the glory? Superman. 
Does Lois get glory for being caught? No, 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 no. She's part of the story, but her part in the story is weakness. Lois's part in the story is weakness. Superman's part in the story is strength and power. He gets glory. He gets revealed for who he truly is. His incredible power and his incredible good heart are shown through this incredible crisis that Lois is in. And what happens? Lois gets joy. Lois gets rest. Lois glories in Superman. She rests in his arms. The crowd below her, they see Superman rescue her and they delight in him. They cheer. They scream out in their newfound hero. Do you know who you are in that story Like every day? You, brothers and sisters, are not Superman. <laughs> you are Lois. You are Lois. Or maybe you're the crowd looking at another brother or sister, Lois. But men and women, we are never, ever Superman. We're never Superman. Our primary job in life is to live and fight and pray in such a way that Superman is seen in our lives. Our primary job in life is to live and fight and pray in such a way that Superman is to see, the Superman is to be seen in our lives. Call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. What that means for us is a lot of failing, a lot of weakness, a lot of struggle, a lot of trial, all resulting in us crying out to God again and again and again and finding him rescuing us again and again and again. The reason we go to God, I said to the kids, is is because, and, and this is such a, oh, I love this. The reason we go to God is not only because we want help with our conflicts and our fighting with each other and all that yucky stuff in our hearts, our anger, our resentment, our jealousies. I'm talking about our these six people in my house, you know, a little microcosm of the world. That's mine. That's mine. John, did you take that from Marie? You know, it's just, it's like, we, we, we go to God because we want help from all that stuff, right? But more and more, more and more, we want to grow in going to God so that we can see him and experience him as he catches us, as we're falling off the daily planet building. We want to see him fly up that building and do something that we know we could not do in our own power. And so these fights that we're having that break our hearts, they become this occasion for us to cry out to God and say, Superman, where are you? We're, we're trust, we want to see you. Not just like, where are you? But, but, but to say, for your glory. When we say for your glory, we're saying so that we might see you so that you might be revealed in our midst, so that we might get the joy and the delight of seeing Superman rescue Lois as she falls off that building. That's what we want. That's what our whole lives are supposed to be about, bringing him glory by seeing him catch us. And so we need to go to God every day, every day, every day, right? Because we don't live off yesterday's breakfast. That's another thing we talked about this week. Why do we go to God every day, kids? Well, you know, I said to Matthew, Matthew, if you said to me, Dad, I'm hungry. And I said to you, well, I fed you yesterday. <laughs> you know, Matthew would just be like, what? You know, and I think God's like that with us. Albert, come to me today. Well, I, I went to you yesterday, God. What? I've called you to live a day at a time. You can't run a, a, month, a month's commute on one tank of gas, right? So we need to go to God every day. Can't live off yesterday's breakfast. We need new mercies every day. He says his mercies are new every day. And so we plead with him, Lord, let me see you today. Be glorified. I stink at this. I'm really struggling with this. I'm being such a crappy dad today. I'm being such a crappy husband. God, I want to see you. Do something with my anger. Do something with my laziness, with my lust. Do something so that I get to see you and so that those around me might see you. A couple of days ago, we had an amazing day. You know, it was just, a, it was like the exact opposite of the day before. And I said to God, I said to the kids, guys, the only difference between yesterday and today is that we spent time calling out to the Lord today and we didn't do it yesterday. And do you see the difference? Do you see how he showed up? 
And the kids are like, yeah, yeah, we sh- we saw it, you know. <laughs> and I want them to be like, yes, daddy, praise Jesus. You know, but they're not like that. You know, they're like, yeah, yeah, we saw it, but I'm seeing it, you know, and it's it's making me excited. So above all things, we pray. We want to see God. We want to experience God. And we want him to be seen and experienced by those around us. What's the beginning of the Our Father? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be lifted up. May your name be respected. May your name be adored and worshipped. That's going to happen if if he's being glorified in our lives. That's what he's asking for. And so in the middle of this, this crushing storm, coming back to this story, what does Jesus do? He simply stands up. With the wind crashing, the the waves crashing, the wind blowing, and he says, peace, be still, peace, be still. And what happens? The wind ceases. There's great calm. And it says the disciples were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, who then is this? Now, finally, they're asking the right question. Who is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Even the wind and the sea obey him. Now, see what's happened in this story. Things have turned upside down. The glory and the awe and the fear that we're all going to the storm. Look how great the storm is. Look how the storm is going to be sovereign over our lives. It's going to be, it's going to crush us, but it's got power over us. Look how great it is. Look how mighty it is. All that glory that was going to the storm through Jesus' actions, through their crying out to him, the circumstances were no longer where the attention is going. The storm is no longer where the glory is going. Now it's going to God. Now the storm is serving Jesus instead of Jesus Jesus being obscured by the storm. Now the trial is serving to highlight God instead of the trial covering who God is in fear. So that's what God wants in our lives. That's what he wants at the core of our prayers. For your glory, Lord, be seen and experienced for who you are. That's what we need more than anything, is to see Jesus. That's what the world needs. That's why, as we said last week, the Lord allowed this world to be so broken. Because we had decided we didn't want God. And so he said, that's the worst thing that could be that could happen to you is that you don't want me. So I'm going to break this world. I'm going to allow it to be broken so that you find out that you need me and you call out to me and you find me saving you, revealing myself to you. And then we can be back together. That's God's plan. That's what you need. That's what everybody around you needs. That's what your moms and dads, your brothers and your sisters, they all need to see and hear that God is real. And then he delivers. Some of them will never want to hear it, but some of them will. In, in their hearts, they'll know this is exactly what I need. And their lives will never be the same as God begins to use you to show them who he is. That's what we all need so desperately. That, that's at the core. That's at the core of what we can be sure God is doing through this illness, through this trial, and through all the economic ramifications that are coming in my life and your life. Some of us may be laid off. You know, I, I don't know. But, but that's not the big story God wants from this. He wants to use that as a backdrop to glorify himself as he saves us from being laid off or sick or death. (laughs) Instead of going to hell, many people go to God in this crisis. And when they die through COVID-19, they go to heaven forever, reconciled to God. That's what he's doing. He's calling the world around us to see his son, Jesus. Not 401ks, not great governments. Not perfect health, but to see Jesus as the only Lord and the only Savior available, and his blood as the only sure means of peace that they need so desperately. But listen, I'm close with this. But but we can prepare the world around us by making sure that we are regularly flexing that muscle of prayer and, and bringing our needs and our fears and our temptations and our confessions to God regularly going to him, believing on his good heart and believing on his power as best as we can so that so that they begin to see that now, so that we get used to more and more seeing it now. We get used to his song being the song of our hearts so that when they're in crisis, we can say, well, I've been praying to him more. I've been looking at his word more and I can tell you he's real and he's been helping me. 
We've got to be ready. <laughs> We've got to be ready by going to God now before it gets too late around us so that, we, that, so that he's on our mouths when things really get torn up, if they really get torn up. So we prepare now by being weak and going to him in our weaknesses and finding him delivering us, calling out to him again and again. And then when the world crashes around us, we can say, I know a Lord and a Savior who can meet you and help you. Brothers and sisters, that's it. That is my message for today. Thank you guys so much for listening. 